0: Well, this morning, we are going to be spending some time in that chapter, chapter 16 of the book of Ezekiel, as we continue in this series that we are calling Visions of Hope. And so uh, before we even dive into that text together, I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message that he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray together with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed gathered us together in this place and this time in which we can come before your word and receive hope, visions of hope, words to encourage us and to hold us up in life's challenges and in these difficult circumstances. And so, Lord, we pray that you would indeed open our hearts and our minds to receive the message you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips. And the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we are gonna be looking at uh, Ezekiel chapter 16. It's a long chapter. Uh, We couldn't read the entire thing, but if you did wanna follow along in your pew Bible, you can open up to Ezekiel 16. It's actually found on page 702 uh, in your pew Bible. We're gonna be looking at this together. Now, there's a reason why uh, I'm really glad that we dismissed the children, and that is because of all the passages in the Bible, this is perhaps the most R-rated passage that you will ever find. I was actually cautioned against preaching texts like this by one of my professors in seminary because of just how, um, quite frankly, disgusting this passage is. Uh, It is R-rated. In fact, our English translations all try to soften it, and even then, it's a difficult one to read. Because of all the various images that we find in the book of Ezekiel, this image is perhaps the grossest image that we could possibly encounter. Ezekiel tells the story of Israel being an adulterous or rebellious wife. And he doesn't simply call her a prostitute or accuse her of being rebellious. He goes into graphic detail about all the various ways in which Israel has cheated on her husband God. It is a chapter that is lewd, a chapter that is disgusting, one that is filled with blood, with violence, with gore, and with death. In fact, I was walking, uh, as I was walking around the office talking to some of our other pastors about preaching this passage this weekend, they were all like, just shocked that we were actually going to preach on this this weekend. They are just like, this is one of the hardest passages that we could possibly wrap our heads around because in it we find God just infuriated to the point of murderous rage. And the question is, why is God so angry? What is it that's gotten him so upset? Because it is a scandalous passage. Quite honestly, this is one of those texts that when, before I came to faith, I looked at it and be like, this is why the Bible is just such a backward, barbaric book. You know, well, why is God so enraged? But in order to understand that, we first need to take a closer look at the passage itself. Because what we find in Ezekiel 16, and the reason why God is so upset, is because of what his people have done. And in order to understand the gravity of it, God tells a little story. It actually begins as a love story. God talks about how Israel was like an abandoned child, whom nobody cared for. One who is left out in the elements to die. And he said, and I came along and I was like a father to you. I I took you in, I clothed you, I washed you, I I fed you, and I protected you. But then it it actually evolves into a love story. He says, and then as you grew up, I, I betrothed myself to you. In fact, at one point in Ezekiel 16, 8, he says these words. He says, I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. God starts by saying, even though you were wanted by nobody, you were precious to me. Even though you had been abandoned by others and left to die, I not only protected you, but I made you mine. You are my precious one. You are beloved in my sight. But then it takes a very, very drastic turn because what we see is that the love that God had for his people was not reciprocated. In fact, Ezekiel goes on to write the following. Speaking of Israel, he says, But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him and he possessed your beauty. You took the fine jewelry that I gave you, jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made yourself male idols and engaged with prostitution with them. You took your embroidered clothes and put it on them. You offered my oil and incense before them, and so on and so forth. The reason God is so upset is because his people whom he loved, his people whom he protected, his people that he had poured his favor out upon are now lusting after other gods. In fact, this is something that we talked about a little bit last week. The reason why Ezekiel and the people are now in exile was because of this kind of idolatry. The ways in which God's own people were now worshipping the gods of the nations around them had entered into alliances with these pagan nations and kingdoms. And what we see is, is in the midst of this prostitution, what's happening is that not only is it broken their relationship with, with God, but it's actually twisted them as people. See, that's the danger of idolatry. I love what Blaise Pascal once wrote. He said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator. See, what he's acknowledging is he says that everybody is meant to worship. Everybody is designed with these deep and eternal longings, which actually are supposed to be filled. That longing is a God-given thing. And yet oftentimes, we try to fill that vacuum with other things that we think are going to satisfy us at a deeper level. And while today we might say, well, I I, I don't know about this whole idolatry thing and and paganism and and stuff like that, the reality is is idols are still very much alive today. Because an idol is anything that you look look toward to fill that hole within you. It's anything that you give your love and your affection to. Everything you pour out your riches to obtain. Everything you expend all of your energy to achieve. It can be, yes, romantic relationships, but also wealth and riches. It can be status and position. It can be respect. It can be the security of that five-year plan that you've so meticulously put together. You see, all of these things, while good and of themselves, cannot ultimately satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart, and yet again and again and again... We pour out everything that we have in order to obtain them, thinking that if we have these things, they will ultimately make us someone, provide us with security, grant us love, give us ultimately stability. That's what idolatry looks like in modern America today. We see it expressed in the various kinds of one-upmanship that take place in the office. And the various ways in which we go into debt in order to have the bigger house or the nicer car. The ways in which we fill our kids' calendars and schedules with sporting event and extracurricular acti- activity after extracurricular activity in the hopes that we will show that, they, that we truly have a, a good and solid family. That our kids truly are the best kind of kids. I could go on. The point is this, in each one of these ways, what are we doing? We're pursuing the idols that we think are ultimately going to provide us with security, satisfaction, and love. And there's a dangerous thing that comes when we do that. In fact, there are two things that God says happens when we pursue idolatry. We actually see them both on display in graphic detail here in Ezekiel chapter 16. Because whatever we're longing for, ultimately not only twists us, but destroys others. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel 16, verse 32. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. All prostitutes receive gifts, but you give gifts to all your lovers, bribing uh, bribing them to come to you from everywhere for your illicit favors. So in your prostitution, you're the opposite of others. No one runs after you for your favors. You're the very opposite. You give payment, and none is given to you. See, what God is saying there in this very passage is he says, every single idol, you need to recognize every single idol demands sacrifice. Every idol ultimately demands sacrifice. It ultimately demands that you pour out something that is yours with a promise that you will be fulfilled, which no idol can ultimately deliver. And the result is is that you keep pouring out and keep pouring out and keep pouring out in this constant effort to try and find that thing which you ultimately think is going to satisfy you, to satisfy those deepest longings of your heart, but they never come through. One of the things that I find so strange and and yet I think uh, highlights the truth of this passage is the fact that we here in America, we live in one of the wealthiest countries on the face of the planet. We have people who make more money than they know what to do with. In fact, they're so rich they start their own space programs, right? I mean, this is how much wealth we have at our disposal, and yet we also have some of the highest rates of uh, mental and emotional illness, highest rates of obesity, Some of the highest rates of divorce. I mean, you look at some of the ways in which our society, for all of our wealth and splendor, seems empty. Why? Because we're constantly hungering and thirsting, longing and lusting after things, and yet when we finally have them, what do we find? They don't deliver. And it ultimately twists and destroys who we are. Part of the reason God is so heartbroken is because his beloved, the one that he rescued and made his own, the one that he loves and was protecting and watching over, has become twisted almost beyond recognition. Pursuing her lovers, pouring out all the gifts that God has given her, and yet receiving nothing in return, but simply fleeting pleasures which fade. But there's another reason idolatry is so dangerous and so twisting is because not only does it does it uh, diminish the image of God within us, what it also does is it turns others into a means to an end. Listen to what he says in Ezekiel chapter uh, 16, verse 20. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols, was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare kicking about in your blood. You see, the people, see, idolatry is never something that just affects us. It always affects other people. The sacrifices never simply stop with what we have. They ultimately pour out and then affect others. In this case, for the people of Israel, what were they doing? Well, in order to gain the favors of the gods of the other nations, they were engaging in child sacrifice. They were, offering up their, they were literally offering up their own sons and daughters at the altars of these gods that they thought would give them wealth, power, prestige, and protection. And yet the reality is, is that, again, we tend to do the same thing, right? What happens if we're pursuing uh, success in our career? Well, then those other people who are also in our office space are suddenly now not colleagues, they're competitors. And we're willing to do anything to step on or over them in order to get that next promotion. What happens if we're pursuing the respect of of fellow families, the respect of our community? Well, then our kids are no longer our kids. They're a means to an end to presenting the perfect uh, image, aren't they? We have to have the best house, the right kind of dog, the perfectly painted fence, 2.5 children. I don't know how you have a half-child, but we try. The perfect car. But we're never really actually spending time with them. We're simply wanting them to achieve. What about our marriages? Well, they're nice until that person no longer gives me the kind of love that I think that I deserve. So I move on to another relationship. We spend longer hours at the office, fewer hours at home. We invest more in the things that are going to get us prestige and less in the people who matter most. See, sacrifices never stay with just us. They always affect someone else. Idolatry always leads to inequality and injustice. It always leads to us minimizing the value of the people around us as we see them as nothing more than a means to our own ends. And this is why God is so enraged. He says, not only are you, the one that I love, so twisted beyond recognition, but you've actually begun to exploit one another. To the point that you're shedding their blood and you've forgotten. You've forgotten what it was like to be unloved. You've forgotten what it was like to be marginalized and oppressed. And now you have become the very thing that I rescued you from. This is why he is so upset. It's a question that we have to wrestle with ourselves to ask ourselves, what price are you willing to pay? Because before our idols, no price is too high that they won't demand it. This is why God is so upset. This is why he's so heartbroken. This is why he cries out in anger against them. Is because in their idolatry, they're ultimately not only destroying themselves, but they're destroying one another. And finally God says, enough, enough, I have to stop this. I have to stop what you have done. For the sake of those who are being sacrificed upon your altars to satisfy your idols, I need to put an end to it. Because our God, while a God of love, is also a God of justice. And he says, I can't let that injustice continue. And yet what's so fascinating is how he brings about justice upon his people. This is what he says. He says, therefore... I'm going to gather all of your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those that you loved as well as those that you hated. I will gather them against you from all around, and they will strip uh, and strip you in front of them, and they will see you stark naked. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring on you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger, and then I will deliver you into the hands of your lovers. They will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty, uh, your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you stark naked. They will bring a mob against you and who will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you and Sight of many women, I will put a stop to your prostitution, and you will no longer pay your lovers. Because you did not remember the days of your youth but enraged me with all these things, I will surely bring down on your head what you have done. You see, what God basically is describing here is He's describing an invasion. He's describing ultimately what is going to happen to Jerusalem, that these nations with whom they've entered into alliances, these nations whose gods they have now taken as their own are going to come and carry them away. Essentially what he says is he says, you want to be like the nations? You want your lovers? Fine. You can have them. And this is exactly what takes place. The people find themselves in exile. So you have to be careful what you wish for. Because sometimes the worst punishment is God simply letting you have it. And that's exactly what he says here. You want your lovers? Fine. You can have them. But the result is that they are left with absolutely nothing. Right back to where they started. It is a terrifying and scary picture. It's a warning for us about where idolatry ultimately leads. See why this is a hard chapter to preach on. It's a difficult one to listen to. Yet it's incredibly relevant for us today where we're constantly pursuing things that we think will satisfy only to find them leaving us empty and alone Ezekiel is simply describing the perpetual habit of the human heart to pursue things other than God, ultimately to our own destructive ends. So the question is, where's the vision of hope in all of this? I mean, that's what we've entitled this series, right? Where's the hope? Look, hope comes actually at the very end. Where God says something truly profound. He says, yes, I will deal with you as you deserve. Because you despise my oath by breaking the covenant. And yet, I will remember the covenant that I made with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. See what God says. He says, even though you've been unfaithful, I will remain faithful. Even though you've broken our marriage vows, I will never break mine. He says, not only am I going to remember the covenant I made with you, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you. One which will ultimately once more deliver you from these places of emptiness and brokenness and destruction in which you find yourselves. A covenant which will bring you back to me to be mine forever. And the interesting way is, is how he says he's going to do it. He says, then I will make atonement for you for all that you have done. This word atonement in the Bible is a very important one because essentially to make atonement means that you pay the price that someone else couldn't pay. God says, I will pay for everything that you have done in order to deliver you and make you mine once more. The question is how? How will God make atonement? Well, the answer is actually found by looking at another place in the Bible. Many years later, uh, the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Ephesus, and he was actually talking to them, uh, probably not surprisingly, about marriage. And yet he says something about marriage that I think uh, directly speaks to exactly what Ezekiel is talking about. Listen to these words. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. See what he's saying? is he's saying, the way that God made atonement for his wayward wife was by coming and dying for her. That's how he paid the price. Because you see, when you look at Jesus, what you find is you find that God was indeed willing to pay for that which we could not pay. That he was stripped naked instead of us. That a mob was brought against him to accuse instead of against you and me. That it's his back that was cut to pieces. His hands, which were nailed to a cross. His feet, which were nailed And put into place there. He who ultimately died the death that we should have died. In order to make us his own. See that's the way that God ultimately makes atonement for his bride. He comes and he lays down his life for her. Jesus is the one who received everything that we should have received. And he willingly bore it upon his own shoulders. Why? In order to cleanse us and make us his own. In order to set us free from all of our idolatry, in order to marry us and to be betrothed to us forever. And when you realize that in Christ you have a lover who's willing to go with you to the very, very end, suddenly all other rival lovers just pale by comparison. Because what we see in Jesus is the one who loves us truly and deeply who although he knows us and all the ways that we've fallen short, still dares to call us his own. One who even in all the midst of our imperfections and brokenness, all of our selfishness and idolatry, still said, you are precious to me and you are mine. One who is willing to lay down his life that we might live. And when you know that, when you see the love that he has for you, all other lovers just, they're not worth it. And we can follow him wherever he calls us to lead because we know that the one who calls us is the one who ultimately promises to go with us, not only into exile, but to death itself in order to show us the depths of his love. Pascal said it well. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. I don't know what you're looking to for love and satisfaction. I don't know what you're looking to for security and for hope and for a future. But the invitation from Ezekiel 16 is to look for the one who alone can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart and who has shown himself to truly be faithful. It's in the name of Jesus Christ who is indeed the lover of our souls. The God who can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart that we say praise be to God. Amen.